Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. There, there have been times when we have compiled them, and well, for example, the little little book on finding God's will started out as a series of Nick of Time articles. A few years ago, Central Seminary published um, a volume of devotional theology uh, to which all of our faculty at the time contributed, but most of the essays in that book started out as Nick of Time articles as well. So you know, part, part of the thing is just continuing to go, you know, week after, day after day, week after week, just, just find time to write, carve out a little time to write. So as a student at Central, and then I've heard you say this and uh, explain this in other venues, you have an, a helpful take on the three ideas of pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. Um, is, could you share that with our audience, how those three things relate? Um, I think that's been a very helpful thing for me in the apologetics world, and even like in the history world, when you look at how people are looking backwards and looking forward to interpret things. But can you walk us through those three terms and what they mean? In terms of the history of ideas, uh, well, let's, let's even start further back than just the history of the thing. Let's, let's start with what we believe about the world. You know, here, here we have a world around us. Let's, let's call this imminent reality. Imminent in the sense that, that it's present, it's at hand. It's what we're actually dealing with. You know, we're bumping into these events and objects all the time. And there are so many of them. They're, they're, they're completely overwhelming to us. Uh, we can't possibly take notice of everything that's going on around us all the time. It, 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 our minds would shut down uh, if we had to process all that information all at the same time. But if you stop and think about it, the imminent reality that surrounds us is only a copy of another reality that existed first. Um, be, because what, what surrounds us is a created reality. Uh, and, and God, of course, is the creator. And, and when God created, he didn't create by saying, let me snap my fingers and see what comes into existence. Oh, well, that's neat. I think I'll call that, I don't know, a fish. <laughs> no. God, God already had a complete order, a complete pattern in his mind before he ever created the world. So let's call that order in the mind of God transcendent reality. So the imminent reality, the present reality in which we find ourselves is a copy of a pattern that has existed. And, and, and by the way, this pattern, there, it, it's not as if God at some point invented this pattern, as if God had to think it up at some point. Um, in, in the uh, chapel service this morning, as Dr. Brown was preaching, he made reference to God's immutability. And part of God's immutability is the idea that, that God never thought of anything. All, all the contents of God's mind Always have, been, have there. been there forever. Right. So the, this transcendent reality that we're talking about is, is actually co-eternal with God himself. And we're living now in, in the copy of that transcendent reality. And that transcendent reality uh, includes not only the moral universe in, or, or the, the material universe in which we live and move and have our being, but it also includes the moral universe. It includes 
you know, not only fish and dogs and airplanes and, and people, it, it includes things like courage and, and peace and fidelity. So, so, so that when God envisioned the, the world, when he envisioned what I'm going to call the universe, and when I use the word universe, what that means is that everything is connected to everything else. Um, when, when God envisioned the universe, he envisioned it not only as a material universe, but as a moral universe in, in which his own moral character would constantly come to bear. So God could not possibly have created a universe, for example, in which deceit would be a virtue. Um, it, it, you know, truth always has to be a virtue because the universe is created by God who is truth. So the universe is transcendent, the, the universe is moral, and the universe is ordered. To, to say that it's ordered means that it's, it, everything connects to everything else. It's a system. It's a pattern. We may not understand all the connections. In fact, we don't. We'll never understand all the connections. It would take an infinite mind to understand all the connections. But God understands all the connections, and everything is connected to everything else so, so that there, there is order in the universe that God has made. It's, it's ordered, it's moral, it's transcendent. That's pre-modernism right there. If, if you see the universe in those terms, you are to some extent functioning with a pre-modern mind. And the point of pre-modernism is, is to say, in order to understand the imminent reality that's around me, what I first must do is to understand as much of the transcendent reality that is in the mind of God as God has chosen to reveal. Right, you're not so, going to get it all, it's just what he's chosen to reveal. Yeah, so, so God, God has provided the framework or the parameters for understanding imminent reality. And what I have to do as I explore imminent reality is to fit the particulars that I observe into the framework or the grid work that God has supplied for me. Faith is before reason. In fact, reason can only function rightly with, within a reality that is first of all defined by faith. Otherwise, it becomes random. It becomes chaotic. Uh, so to, to, to put it in, years ago, there was a TV show called The X-Files. Oh, yeah. And their, their, their big uh, <laughs> slogan was, the truth is out there. Well, yeah. in pre-modernism, the truth is up there. Mm. In, in fact, this order, this grid, this pattern that exists in the mind of God in which everything connects to everything else and everything explains everything else, that's what we'll call the truth, capital T. What modernism does is to shift the focus away from transcendent reality to the imminent reality, to the reality that's around us. What modernism says is that we can come to the truth, that is to say, we can come to understand all the connections, all the order, all the pattern, by simply looking at the particulars within imminent reality itself. Now, modernism doesn't start out denying that there is a transcendent reality. What it begins by doing is to shift the order away from transcendent reality to imminent reality, such that if you want to understand the transcendent reality, you actually have to work your way up to it through your understanding of the imminent reality. And that's so, where Galileo came in. 
with his epistemology? Thing? Well, uh, you know, Galileo is, he's, he's such an odd case because there are so many things at stake in the whole controversy with Galileo. Um, I, but I would actually trace the shift even further back. I, come, I think it comes with late medieval, the, the dominance of late medieval nominalism over uh, medieval realism. Uh, so, so you get Occam, and then your next major step along the way is, is going to be Francis Bacon. Uh, and then by the time you get down to the, um, the, the, the uh, empiricists in particular, uh, you, you've got a radical shift toward imminent reality. And, and now the slogan really is, the truth is out there. Mm-hmm. So you find the truth by go, you, you, you start collecting facts. You add one fact to another fact to another fact to another fact. And if you collect enough facts and stare at them long enough, then the connection will become apparent to you. That sounds like my undergrad right there. If I stare at the facts long enough, maybe. So would it be appropriate to say, so you said pre-modern, faith before reason. But then now we flip. Now it's reason of my imminent reality leads me to what's out there. Would that be an appropriate way of saying it? I would say it's not reason before faith in modernity. It's doubt before faith in modernity. Uh, in other words, you, you refuse to believe anything until it has been justified on the grounds of something that you perceive within imminent reality. And, and you're, you, you can adopt different starting points. Your, your starting point may be rationality, that's Descartes. Your starting point may be um, empirical experience, that's Locke. Uh, but, but what all modernity has in common is the belief that you start with the imminent reality. So you prioritize the imminent reality. But of course, once you've done that, then why do you really even need a transcendent reality anymore? And so once, once you begin to commit to the modernistic perspective, you, you almost immediately begin to undermine any notion of the transcendent. But once you have undermined your notion of the transcendent, you automatically undermine your, your notion of the moral. In fact, the, the big philosophical project for modernity was to try to figure out if there was any way that you could justify the, the distinction between right and wrong merely on the basis of what you could observe in this present reality. And frankly, nobody ever succeeded in doing that. It's, it's the is-ought problem. And, and you find it all over the place. Uh, and, and nobody ever solved it, in my opinion, nobody ever solved it successfully. So, so that morality begins to erode, and you end up eventually with, with the emotivists, the logical positivists, A.J. Ayer, Bertrand Russell, that crowd, uh, in, in which the only meaningful statements are statements that are empirically verifiable. Moral statements are never empirically verifiable. Therefore, it's not that they are false, it's that they are meaningless. And, and, you know, it, it, morally, it's no worse to kill and eat a baby than it is to nurture and kiss that baby. Um, and and it's, it's, I mean, frankly, a savage uh, place that you end up with, with modern assumptions. So, so you, you dissolve the transcendent, then you dissolve the moral, and then the last thing you discover is this. There are so many facts, there, there is no way of ever hoping that we can put them all together into one comprehensive explanation that constitutes the truth. And so now the very category of order begins to dissolve. And for a while you're able to hold on to 
smaller truths. We have an explanation here, we have an explanation there, we have an explanation there, but the distance between those explanations keeps getting greater and greater and, until finally you, you simply can't hold things together. Um, and, and probably e even in physics, even in the hardest sciences, the, the place that this becomes particularly urgent is in quantum theory, uh, where, where you, you, you know, by the late 19th century, physicists think they, they've got just virtually everything figured out. They, they are able to explain nearly all the connections except for black body radiation. And, and once they start to lean on that, and, and as their testing mechanisms be become more sophisticated and everything, what they discover is that at the subatomic sub level, nothing behaves the way that it ought to on the basis of Newtonian physics. Uh, and, and so reality itself, at least as we thought it was, begins to dissolve. And, and this is the point now at, at which the, the door is wide open for postmodernism. Uh, so in premodernism, the, the truth is up there. In modernism, the truth is out there. But, but in postmodernism, okay, we, we know there's something out there, but we don't know what it is. And in fact, the postmodernist says, what happens is that, that either as cultures or as language groups or, or even merely as individuals, our minds are somehow taking the reality that is out there and it's, it's our minds or our cultures or our languages or some, something else that, that is organizing reality for us. Uh, and, and so what we perceive as order is actually an order that we have somehow imposed in, in the mere act of observing. And so now the truth is in here, in ourselves. And, and so truth becomes radically person relative. And in fact, in the most extreme forms of postmodernism, from, from Heidegger onward, even the self is no longer organized. The self becomes one of those things that we are in the process of constructing. And of course, that brings us right down to where we are now with you know, all, the, all the gender stuff that's going on right now. It, who, who has the right to invent yourself for you? Don't you have the right to invent your own self? Uh, so th th this, this is extremely practical stuff as well. So the truth is up there, the truth is out there, the truth is in here. That's, that's the rough outline of Western intellectual history uh, since, since nominalism took over. That's very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. I've heard that a couple of times, and every time I feel like I get more out of it. Do you have that written anywhere? Is there anywhere you've you've put this together, or is there any sources that would like if uh, if some one of our listeners thinks, man, I really want to go further on this? Is there anywhere you've written this down, or there's nowhere that I've written this down. If if you if you really want to study it, the place to begin is Richard Weaver. Ideas have consequences. Mm. Yeah, okay. and that's one of those books you're going to need to read three times. See, I wonder if that's the book you actually told me isn't good till your third read. I no, 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 no. It, it was Barfield. It was you just want to talk about Barfield. <laughs> okay, there's one last question that we that we like to ask, which is if if you could go back to yourself on on day one, so maybe day one academically, day one in in pastoral ministry, any any of those fields, and you you could say. Uh, this is what you need to be doing. So, so something that you've started doing recently or over the last few years in your ministry that you wish you'd been doing the whole time. So if you could go back and say, you really need to do this for the next X years, do this, and it'll help you. What, what would that be? You know, I, I don't know that, that I could actually tell the young me 
do this because <laughs> the young me never took well to being told you need to do this. Mm -hmm. All the things that I would say to the young me are things that other people actually said to the young me. <laughs> um, what I needed to do, and this, this is not just in college, this is, this is from grade school forward. I needed to start trying. Um, I, okay, number one, I was the victim of a broken educational system. That's, that's part of the problem. But number two, I was lazy. Green books everywhere. And, and green books everywhere. That's exactly right. But I, I was lazy and, and uninterested. And there were, there were some reasons for that uh, in, in uh, a lot of academics. And I came, I, I graduated in the lower half of my high school class. Um, when, I, when I came to faith, I, I made reference to some of this last night. For the first two years that I was here, I did nothing academic. Um, the first time I took Greek, I flunked it. Uh, and, and it's not because I was stupid, although I am, uh, but it's, it's because I just didn't apply myself. And the result was that by the time I did start applying myself, um, I was already behind the curve. And throughout my adult life, I, I have felt like I've had to fight that deficiency. Uh, I'm, I'm still fighting to catch up. Um, because I ought, by, by this stage of my life, I ought to know so much more than I do. So wh what I would say is, you know, get serious about life and get started early. Um, and what, whatever point you're at when you hear this, this, this it's not too early uh, to, to begin. Um, just begin to apply yourself. For me, uh, it, it, the, the transformation, you know, I, I started to work harder and harder during my junior and senior years here at Faith. But it wasn't until I got into seminary that the discipline really seemed to come alive for me, and, and it gripped me. It was, when, when I went to seminary, I had the idea in mind that I was going to get a one-year Master of Arts, and that was going to be enough for me to pastor for the rest of my life. But by the time I was a week into seminary studies, I, 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 can, I can remember this so vividly, I, I remember feeling... I want to get as much of this as I possibly can. And that's the point at which the lights really started to come on. So, some of that was happening while I was a student here at Faith. George Houghton's classes, I mean, they, they just, lights, lights came on in those classes. Mm. But when I, when I got to seminary, it was the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, but by then, you know, there was so much I should have known already. Catch up. I feel like I'm playing catch up. I've been yeah. playing catch up for a long time. Yeah. Well, my my upbringing playing eight hours of video games a day didn't help me. I definitely feel catching up here. It didn't teach you more about God's word. No. Prepare you. It didn't for help it. me to think. <laughs> it didn't help me to anything. You know, the last video game that I can remember playing, I think, was Pac-Man. <laughs> well, we actually have a funny story about that. I don't know if we should not say that story or when we had hermeneutics at Central. We brought his Xbox. You're really going to say this story? Oh, yeah. I'm going to say it. It's already started. you got to say it. Statute of limitations so, has so expired. So you're, you're playing video games in class? No, no. no. The in first the, night. In the hotel. You know, the, the, the uh, night before, we're playing some game, and uh, we thought we'd go to class, and we'd come home at night and play video games, and that didn't, ended didn't after day one. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Sorry to ruin your life. No, actually, that was one of the most helpful things. Well, Dr. Bowder, we're... Very grateful that you came uh, to to be on our podcast. 
And uh, again, I, I'm very thankful for your, your ministry and the word with us last night. And uh, I'm sure these uh, guys would like to say things too, but we're not going to let them. Hey, 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 hey. That's not nice. <laughs> no, go ahead. Say what no, you want. No, I just... I, Closing I tell, comments. I tell people this. I'm so thankful for both my seminary experiences here at Faith and up at Central. And from day one, entering my teaching ministry, I think back to the time at Central when I we were pressing me mentally. And I'm very thankful. I don't think I could be a teacher today if I hadn't had that that part of it. And also like your 20th century theologians class, I was so confused as to why that was helpful at the time. And ever since then, that class has paid dividends. So I really appreciate your ministry to look at things that are really confusing and weird and outside the, the scope and help us to understand. Cause that's really helped me. And I've, I've really appreciated that over the years. I think I only had one class with you up at central, the hermeneutics class, because I was an OT major. But um, yeah, you've had a huge impact in my life, even through that one class, and then vicariously through Andy. We were taking classes at the same time, and so he was regularly sharing information. Like your whole 20th century theologians, that one specifically, I bought the book, and we talked about several of those theologians. So you've had a greater impact in my life than even just that one class, just even through the Nick of Time articles. And um, yeah, here, the postmodern, modern, pre-modern discussion, uh, I've taught through that, Andy's taught through that, and... We're just very grateful for the impact that you've had in our lives. Thank you. Any closing comments for us or our listeners, Dr. Bowder? Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.